Speak to us. Good morning. When Dave kicked this series off, I was uh, <coughs> speaking away in Bristol. And <coughs> I had an unusual experience, which I've never had before when I'm preaching, and I hope it won't happen this morning. I was in a 19th century church building in a very, very cold, dark day. It was raining throughout that Sunday. And the congregation was full, the energy was high. And I noticed that there was very little natural light. And uh, the heating system came from electrical heaters in the ceiling, very high ceiling. Anyway, everything was fine. And about 19 minutes into the sermon, there was a total power failure. Suddenly my microphone disappeared. My PowerPoint slides disappeared, the lights disappeared, the coffee urns stopped churning, (laughs) and most important of all, the heaters went out. I saw the look of sheer panic at the men at the back as they were fiddling around and trying to work out what the problem was and realized they were not going to fix it. I've had many experiences preaching. This was a novelty. So I just looked at him and I said, well, Paul didn't have a microphone and nor do I, but let's just crack on. That's exactly what we did. The only light I could see during the second half of the sermon was smartphone lights. (laughs) As people were either A, looking at the text, or B, doing something that I didn't even mention this morning. Texting looking at the internet, checking the football results. (laughs) However, while all that drama was going on back in Bristol, a far more significant drama was being unfolded by Dave here. And it's a great joy to pick up on that story. Six years ago, I was in Turkey for a conference at a place called Izmir. And at the end of the conference, before going home, the organizers advertised a half a day trip to the archaeological ruins of Ephesus, which is an enormous ancient archaeological site, absolutely enormous, spreads out in all directions, right by the sea. And it's very pertinent to our story here. And in, my, in your imagination, just come with me on this journey. So six years ago, I'm walking around this amazing city with manifold archaeological remains, a huge, great high street, pillars, houses. You could see some mosaics on the floor. You could see the city council building, which was still roughly intact. Um, uh, you could see little shrines of worship. You could even see inscribed on the walls a Jewish menorah. That's a seven-fold candlestick which said there must have been some Jewish people living in Ephesus. You could even see the, the frontage of the old library in the city. You could go into one or two of the houses. And as you went down the main street towards the sea, because it's right next to the sea, when you came to the bottom, you saw a huge great theater carved in the side of the 
hill where literally thousands of people could have sat and listened to plays or political speeches or music or drama, whatever they might have had. And you saw an enormous marketplace. I mean, such a big marketplace. Right by the sea. This was a big city and people came from all sorts of different places and they came to trade. And then there was a road going down to the port and then off went the ships all the way across the Aegean. It was an amazing vision of the past. And then to think that Paul spent two whole years in that city preaching. He took a, a, a hall and he preached for two years, as Dave said a few weeks ago. And literally hundreds, in fact, we can legitimately say thousands of people believed. We don't have the exact number, but the way the New Testament expresses it is very dramatic. You know, thousands of people believed. And a great church was built there. And then there was a great riot and Paul was had up in the, in the theater and, uh, and then people wanted to kill him and so he had to leave the city in a hurry. And that's the story of Ephesus in the book of Acts in a nutshell. But then suddenly when I read Colossians, I think of a single person who must have walked through the streets of Ephesus like I did 2,000 years later. And his name, as, as Dave indicated in his first talk, is a man semi-anonymous to us called Epaphras. He didn't live in Ephesus. He lived in Colossae. Now, Colossae is as far from Ephesus as we are from London. And Colossae and Ephesus is like Shrewsbury is to London. We're just a little regional town, and London's the great capital city. Colossae was just a little regional town, and Ephesus was the great cosmopolitan city, trading city of the region. And so Epaphras, for some reason we don't know, he made the journey to Ephesus. Maybe he was trading. Maybe he had friends there. Maybe he was worshipping at the great uh, temple to Diana, which, just, which dominated the scenario. Who knows? But when he came there, he had a shock. He heard a crazy little Jewish preacher called Paul. This country bumpkin from Colossae, coming to the big city, heard a totally different message. He'd never heard anything like it before. He'd never heard of anything to do with particularly the Jews and Jesus. Never heard of Jesus. And as far as we can tell, Epaphras, and he probably had a few mates with him. One of them might have been called Philemon. One of them might have been called Archippus, who's at the end, Archippus at the end of the, of the, of the book. We, we don't know. We haven't got the details. But they went back home. And started a church, as Dave has explained. Back there in Colossae. Rather like somebody coming back to Shrewsbury from London saying, hey, there's something new down there. We're going to start this new religion from scratch. And as we fast forward the story, as we've already heard, we realize that Paul never got as far as Colossae. He was kicked out of Ephesus in a hurry and off he went in another direction. He never actually got there, as we heard earlier on in the earlier talks. He never visited the city, he never met the church. But Epaphras, years and years later, same guy who'd been down there when, when Paul was around, visiting Paul in Rome, says, this is what's happening. Some good things, some dodgy things. Things I'm not really I'm not really sure how our church is going. It's kind of like a bit mixed. And hence the letter. 
as Terry and Dave have explained. And as the letter progresses, when we come to this section, we're getting to the crunch. Now, when Paul writes a letter, you either get the crunch at the beginning or you get it somewhere in the middle and you have to work out where the, where the thing is. Now, we're getting to it this week and next week. Because Paul's great concern for those people was they started out well, but they were in real danger of drift. So in this passage, he's going to contrast doing well and drifting. So Christians can drift. Do I need to tell you that? We know that. Some of us have had that experience in some ways. Paul was quite clear about it. And he wanted to pull them back quickly. So here are the first few verses. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue in, to live in him, sorry, to, to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental forces of this world, rather than on Christ. And in those verses, we've got the contrast. It's as clear as anything in the first few verses. And so he starts by saying, you know, what, what is true faith? You receive Christ as Lord. You can't really be a Christian until he's Savior and Lord. You kick out all the other idols. And he says, continue to live your lives in him, which tells us an interesting thing. Conversion is not a destination, it's a beginning. Conversion is not a destination, it's a beginning. When you go to a train station, do you fancy hanging around there for hours and hours and making it your destination? Is that what you ever feel when you go to the train station? It's certainly not what I feel. I want to move on as quickly as possible. I'm not enjoying the diesel fumes. I'm not enjoying the waiting. I'm not enjoying the cold on the platform. I'm not enjoying the uncertainty of when the train may arrive and if I can catch my connection. And you don't see many people hanging around on a train station, do you? Actually, I did see a guy the other day in Nuneaton. I arrived early in the morning and he was train spotting. <laughs> and I had the most, you know, he had his list. You know, he was sitting on the platform really intense, writing things down. And to my utter amazement, when I came back in the evening, <laughs> he was still there on the same platform. And I'd been in London. God bless him. But that's not what we use train stations for. We're going somewhere. We've got a ticket to ride. And you're not allowed platform tickets these days anyway. Things are too smart for that. The old days you could go and receive people on the platform, but in the mainline station you can't do that anymore generally. So when you're converted, you're on a journey. Paul says, live. Carry on, carry on, carry on. Don't just stop. Don't just look back. Don't look at your baptism certificate every day and say, I've done it, that's it. It's not an anniversary. It's not a certificate. It's not an exam you passed. It's not a marriage certificate. It's not a birth certificate. It's not a photo from the past. It's not a family photo. 
It's the beginning. Paul says to the Colossians, you really began well. Epaphras and all those other guys, they told you exactly what I told them in Ephesus. And they spent some time with me and, uh, and they've told you what to do and you carried on. But you've got to keep going. And you've got to be strengthened in the faith as you were taught. Now to be strengthened in the faith, you've got to be in the community of faith. Hardly anyone can be strong in the faith unless they're in the community of faith. 20 years ago, I was in London with a friend. He said to me, I can't do church anymore. We've had this big crisis in the church and we talked it all through. And he'd been a very live Christian. I looked in his eyes and the lights had gone out. Saw him a few weeks ago, the lights are on again. Because he took to heart these sentiments. Don't let anything put you off. He's firing on all cylinders. Took a few years to get back on the road. Strengthened in the faith. And here's an interesting thing. Overflowing with thankfulness. Wow. Why do we worship? Lots of reasons. One reason is to elicit the emotion of thankfulness in the human heart. Because we've all got things we're not thankful for. We've all got things that are troubling us and weighing us down, but the Holy Spirit leads us to thankfulness and thankfulness leads us to God and that thankfulness leads us to maturity. A thankful heart is a gracious and a wonderful thing. And see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy depending on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces. Now, Paul is saying very bluntly Human thinking, and this expression, by the way, elemental spiritual forces, despite some scholarly discussion, undoubtedly refers to demonic powers. Human thinking and demonic counterfeit will produce a way of thinking and living that's hollow and deceptive. It's an alternative to Christ. It'll happen in every society. It'll happen in a multitude of different ways. There will be alternatives. There are alternatives always to Christ. And Paul said it's hollow and deceptive. Don't be fooled. Go up and down the streets of Ephesus. A little shrine here. A big goddess up there. A temple to the emperor over here. There's still one there in Ephesus to one of the Roman emperors. You can see the remains of it. Lots of Eastern Oriental mystery religions coming into the city. There was plenty of alternatives. Don't be fooled. Don't go down that road. Now, what did he have in mind? What did Paul specifically have in mind in this case? Well, we're going to discuss that next week because he's going to spell it out more fully. Uh, In the next passage, he's going to say the particular things they faced in Colossae, which needed to be... Resisted, But isn't that interesting? There's a general challenge to Christians that we, our foundation has to be Christ and Christ alone, not just at the beginning of our faith, but all the way through the Christian journey. It's very easy to say, well, I think I'll just dial certain things down because I fancy a bit of another philosophy, another bit of another religion, a bit of another way of life. And Paul says, it's hollow, it's deceptive. And he goes on in the next passage, if we could move to the next text, to give his robust answer to all these alternatives in a nutshell. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you've been brought to fullness. He's the head. 
In other words, he has authority over every power, and authority, every spiritual power, every idea. In him you're all circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So he summarizes the Christian faith here by alluding to a number of things, the deity of Christ. And basically what he's saying is, there's a lot of other gods out there. But there's only one person in whom the full deity is represented. Now, isn't that a wonderful truth? There are plenty of alternative ideas that allude to God or draw in deity in some way, even today. And in those days, there were hundreds of little gods here and there. And Paul says, you can forget about all that. There's actually only one. And he is Christ. And baptism symbolizes the new life that we have entered into. So if you ever have any doubts about your faith or you're ever a bit shaky, go back to your baptism and think, well, what actually happened there? What did it mean? Paul said it meant a brand new start. I'm going to focus on the last few verses, which are going to come up on the screen now. Verses 13 to 15. This is a simply <coughs> magnificent description of the Christian faith <coughs> by Paul. It's one of the most profound, compact, compelling, hard-hitting descriptions of what it is to be saved that you'll read anywhere in the New Testament. Let's just go through it. Maybe we'll do it just phrase by phrase. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Now, the word dead here principally means separated. And alive means connected to God. So he's basically identifying the fundamental problem of humanity. Whoever you are, you're separated from God until Christ comes into your life, then you're connected. Is that great news? And then he comes to one of the most stupendous statements. It seems obvious. But I love this statement, and I want to just dwell on it for a moment. For he forgave us all our sins. I was speaking to someone some time ago who knows they're a Christian, they've lived a Christian life, but certain things happened many years ago that they really, 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 really regret. They really regret. They've repented of them many years ago. And this person said to me, I'm still troubled. And I said, I've got a scripture for you. And I read them this passage and this phrase. He forgave us all our sins. Can I say that again? He forgave you and me all our sins. Now, Paul goes on to say, 
Having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he's taken it away. So he's imagining metaphorically that the sins of a human being are rather like a list, a legal list, such as I've got here. The life of Martin Charlesworth before Christ. And there's a list. And Paul says, he's taken it away. He's taken the list away. Now, not some of the list. He didn't put it in the cupboard. Oh, we'll bring that back at a later date just to freak you out. Did he say that? No, he's taken it away. And then what does he say in the next, in the next phrase? This is one of the most stupendous statements in the New Testament, by the way, is a metaphorical reality. Nailing it. This. To the cross. What else was nailed to the cross? Who else was nailed to the cross? Thomas said, I'm not going to believe until I see the nail marks in his hand. And that's the narrative of the New Testament and concerning the death of Christ. He was nailed to the cross, substitutionary atonement and sacrifice. But Paul now suddenly, strikingly and powerfully hits us in the face with an astonishing thought that there's one other thing nailed to that cross. And it's my guilt and your guilt and my sin and your sin historically, not just some of it, but all of it. It's going to be placed somewhere outside of myself because this is a terrible weight for me. I've got this in my drawer. I know what I did in the past. You know what you did in the past. You know there's no, no escape from the history, our personal history. We can't escape the things. We sometimes regret deeply what we did, what other people did to us, the suffering we had that wasn't our fault, the things, the mistakes we made, the mistakes our parents made, the things that people did. This can only go to one place, to the cross. And that's exactly where it's going right now. Do you see this? It's my biggest one from my toolbox. I've got a dainty one for those picture hooks that are tricky. But this is for the big stuff. You know what this is? That's the entire record. Do you know what this is? A nail like the nails that the Roman soldiers used.
So Paul says, that's what Christ did for you, Colossians. Why have you gone down another road? Why are you looking at those Roman and Greek gods and those Eastern mystery religions and the worship of the emperor, all those other crazy things? He's, he's nailed it to the cross. The cross is the symbol of forgiveness and atonement. And what's nailed on the cross is never taken off and opened up again. It's gone. So when you arrive in, in eternity, in a certain sense in which your God won't be able to recall to mind the things that you were guilty for. And he certainly won't be bringing them out again because of what Christ did. Sufficient for all. Please stay there. And then in conclusion, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now what does this mean? This is another metaphorical image that Paul uses. How has Christ triumphed over the evil powers and made a public spectacle of them? How in reality does that work out? What does it actually mean? It sounds like a great phrase, but what does it actually mean? Because we know they're still in existence and they're still operating. What it means is that Paul has in mind something that every Roman citizen had in mind is that there was one kind of triumphal procession that took place regularly in Roman cities and particularly in Rome but in other places and that is when the Roman army defeated an alternative army, a rebel army. They didn't just defeat them in the place of the battle. They took captives. They took the leaders. They took the military leaders and they took soldiers, particularly men and captives And they took them all the way to their capital city, Rome, or they took them all the way to another capital, and they planned a big public demonstration of their victory to all the people. They invited all the crowds to come along, and they paraded in utter humility and degradation the defeated army. And then at the end, generally speaking, they would execute the leaders and send all the other men off into slavery. So a triumphal procession in the mind of the reader would have this connotation. But Christ's triumphal procession is different. Christ's triumphal procession is represented by when believers gather and worship free of sin as we're doing today. It's a public demonstration to all the principalities and powers that for those who take hold of Christ they're out of the grasp of the enemy. They're in another kingdom. 
terrible power of sin has been truly broken. And I want you to believe that with all your hearts. I don't want you to linger with thoughts about things that happened in the past that have troubled you even though you've brought them to God. If you've truly repented of them, this is their destiny. Let's not live in the shadows. Because the shadow allows us our own emotions and our own feelings about ourselves, and even, dare I say it, our own pride, a place. Our pride has already been broken because we've had to give in and say, I can't save myself. Let's take all of that salvation. And anything we do wrong now, Keep a short account with God. Don't let it linger. Because he has won that victory. Thank you. Let's stand. <clears throat> Can I ask the musicians to return? And in a minute, we're going to sing, You Were the Word at the Beginning. What a beautiful name it is. My message is short, but it's intended to be crystal clear. And I invite you to enter into the benefits of this salvation, to underline everything, not to let any shadows linger and to come again to Christ. Truly, what a beautiful name. He forgave us all our sins. You were the word at the beginning.